Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to new bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Well, well, welcome back to Bibliophiles, everyone. Adam Andrews with you once again, joined as always by members of the Center for Lit crew. Today, it's two members of the Center for Lit crew, my wife, Missy. Hi. And my daughter-in-law, Emily. Hello. Hi, guys. Welcome back. Thanks. What's the news? News of the day, trying to get things underway again after Easter. Ah, yes. Easter was glorious. We had Ian and Emily up to Center for Lit headquarters in beautiful downtown Rice, Washington, the cultural hub of the Northwest. Had a little family weekend, didn't we, guys? Yeah, we enjoyed the back porch. It's finally warm. So that Mm -hmm. was nice. But now it's hard to um, refocus my attention away from the back porch and towards things like uh, the laundry and the homeschooling and things like that. If you spent the whole weekend uh, looking at the territorial view at your back window, it's hard to turn and look at your computer screen all day long. Yes, it is. That's true. Well, uh, since you've been back at the uh, Andrews Junior Homestead, Emily, have you? did you find it as you left it? Are you back in the saddle? Yep. It's just as dirty and messy <laughs> as I left it. <laughs> uh, well, let's see if, if a discussion of some elevated theme can't uh, fix what's the matter with us all now that we're back in the doldrums, shall we? Let's do. Uh, Ian suggested, though he can't be here today, he made a great suggestion recently, uh, and that is that the Bibliophiles crew take a uh, quotation that one of the members has come across in their recent reading and toss it out for conversation and uh, for mulling over, rather than trying to take a whole book in an episode, maybe we just bat a quotation around that seems to have intellectual or spiritual import of some kind. And uh, taking this suggestion, I found one that I want to give a try uh, with this method. And it's a, it's a quote from a book by Simone Weil called Gravity and Grace. I don't know if uh, any of you Bibliophiles listeners have are familiar with this book, Gravity and Grace, or with the author, Simone Vale, but um, Missy, you're the one that came across her most recently in our little circle and sort of introduced us to her, I think. Isn't that true? Yeah, I've been reading, I've been finding her in my reading, and so I, I bought a couple of her books and have poked around in this one a little. An early to mid-20th century French philosopher and mystic who, uh, who was born in 1909 and died in the early 40s in England of uh, tuberculosis, but famous for her, um, for her Christian philosophy and her philosophy generally, and is known um, in philosophical circles and in theological circles as a kind of a seminal thinker of her period, the early 20th century. And she's um, also kind of radical, right? Yeah, definitely radical um, in terms of her political views. Um, anarchist and uh, what? What are the? What's the term I'm looking for? I guess radical is probably a socialist. Yeah, also, socialist yeah, is the yeah. word I was looking for. Yeah. And she also, she refused to ever join the church. She was mentored by a Catholic, but never. She was definitely a, a self-confessed outsider. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and most of her, most of her works come to us as um, posthumous publications of her notebooks, especially Gravity and Grace, which if you ever pick it up and read, you'll find it kind of disjointed and 
Uh, it looks a lot like the, the jottings uh, in a notebook by someone who nevertheless has a um, kind of a profound grasp on some universal philosophical and religious issues. So I don't know, Missy, would you recommend uh, Vale to the Bibliophiles listener? I don't know if I've read enough of her to, to decide whether or not to recommend her. I've just been interested myself in poking around in her work, and I haven't had opportunity to explore her as fully as I'd like to. So I'm interested in what you have to say about her today. Well, I, I want to start by just reading this quote. It's, a, it's kind of an amalgam of sentences from this book, Gravity and Grace, from the first couple of chapters uh, on, these, on these two symbols that she sets up, gravity on the one hand and grace on the other. And she uses them to describe and characterize the, the human plight, the nature of man vis-a-vis God and vis-a-vis powers beyond him in general. And so I want to read this quote, and then let's just, let's just kind of talk about its implications for a minute. It, it goes like this. All the natural movements of the soul are controlled by laws analogous to those of physical gravity. Grace is the only exception. Grace fills empty spaces, but it can only enter where there is a void to receive it. And it is grace itself which makes this void. The imagination is continually at work, filling up all the fissures through which grace might pass. We must continually suspend the work of the imagination, filling the void within ourselves. Simone Vale from Gravity and Grace. Can you guys see why I thought that was kind of a, a good place to start? Kind of dips into some profound ideas? Yeah, I actually... I would need to read that several times before I could talk intelligently about it. Well, maybe I should read it again once. I think you should go. read it again once. So it's really four kind of linked ideas. The first one, all the natural movements of the soul are controlled by laws analogous to those of physical gravity. Grace is the only exception. And then a second idea describing how grace works. Grace fills empty spaces, but it can only enter where there is a void to receive it. And it is grace itself which makes this void. And then a sentence kind of about a, hu- a human response to the grace idea. The imagination is continually at work, filling up all the fissures through which grace might pass. And then finally, a command or a warning or, or an exhortation. We must continually suspend the work of the imagination, filling the void within ourselves. That's beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? Emily, what's your, re- what's your response to that? The first thing it made me think of is that quote from King Lear, nothing comes from nothing. And that ends up being only slightly true. <laughs> or it's true in the fact that it's profound, that it's the nothings of the world that are more significant than the somethings. Mm. The, the idea, her, her use of the word void, that there's a void yeah, that's necessary. Yeah, it's in the void, it's in the nothing that we find our fulfillment. Mm. Grace fills empty spaces, but it can only enter where there's a void to receive it. The idea of grace being a supply of some kind, a filling, a provision, but that it's necessary to be empty-handed. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I, I want to go back to the very first sentence and okay. ask, what is, what is it that she means by laws analogous to physical gravity? All the natural movements of the soul are controlled by laws analogous to those of physical gravity. What does she mean by that? Yeah, that's really interesting. There's a couple of a couple of ideas in that first sentence that I think are worth 
chewing on, even though we don't have a lot of context from Vale as to, as to what she meant. But the idea of physical gravity being an analogy to the soul or the natural movements of the soul, the idea of the natural movement of the soul being down instead of up, like physical gravity, being heavy instead of light, and being um, drawn to massive things. She talks at one point about the idea that, she, she asks the question, why is it that at the moment when I need my neighbor the most and express my need to him, it's at that moment when he spurns me and pushes me away. She says, so, this is gravity. So she's using the physical world to explain non-physical realities in human yes, relationships. For sure. Yes, for sure. Both with one another and with God. Yes. So she's creating kind of a, a metaphor here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's at the point that I'm nothing that other people won't gravitate towards me because I don't have mass. I don't have substance. Mm -hmm. When I'm nothing, no one comes to me. I think that's kind of the idea. Yeah. Yeah. Although at the same time, she's proposing a void as the only solution. Right. Because gravity is not the solution. Gravity abhors a void because there's no mass to draw. But, but she says that grace is the only exception. Grace actually goes toward the nothingness. It goes toward the void. She talks about uh, grace going downward by an upward movement in kind of a strange um, juxtaposition of ideas. Grace goes downward by an upward movement. What do you mean by that? Well, it's the just to stay within the sentences we're looking at, it's the exception to the, to the analogy of physical gravity by which things are attracted to mass, attracted by massive things. Grace is, and so, and so because gravity is the law by which massive things are attracted to each other, then a person who is a void is not attractive. A person who's empty has no mass, and so his neighbors repel him, in other words. Mm-hmm. Grace is the only exception. Grace goes to the void and fills the void and is attracted, if you like, to the void. And in that way, grace is not natural. Right. Right. Grace is supernatural. Yes. That's yeah. I think that's really interesting. Given I don't know current climates, <laughs> we want to. I mean, this has been going on since Thomas Aquinas, right? We want to understand the supernatural by means of the analogy in the physical, mm. and we believe that everything. If 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 we understand. Uh, the beast, then we can understand ourselves. And so if we can understand ourselves and we can, under- what is that called? The chain of the, chain the of great being. chain of being. Yes. That every, mm-hmm. every succeeding level upward is analogous to the one before. And mm-hmm. so finally God is analogous to an angel or God is analogous to man. And we know God by analogy. And the implication is that we, we reach God by analogy too. Mm-hmm. But she seems to, to suggest that the well, she says the imagination is continually at work filling up all the fissures through which grace might pass, so that we must suspend the work of the imagination, filling the void within ourselves. That somehow the intellect, the imagination, is antithetical to the work of grace in our lives. That it that is it's an opponent in a sense, which is really an interesting idea. I think so too. To me, because. When I was growing up, the imagination was kind of held up as superior, and it it was to be hoped in. It was even salvific, which I think is kind of um, it's kind of a holdover from 
the idea of the romantics, the romantic period, they believed that imagination was going to, in some way, rectify all the wrongs in the world. Yeah. And I, I think that's probably residual from that idea. I, I don't know what you think about that. But she, I think this is very interesting that she says that the imagination, far from being the salvific hope that's going to fix everything, it actually gets in the way and works against grace, which is the only hope. Yeah, I think she says that explicitly. It's continually at work, filling up all the fissures through which grace might pass, walling off the heart from grace. It might be helpful to define what she means by imagination there. With the romantics, we're thinking um, creativity, like human creativity, Mm -hmm. right? This is what we encourage in children. And I don't think that that she's necessarily saying that in itself is bad. I think it's a particular work of the imagination that she's pointing to. Because it's, it is a creative work that she's talking about in a sense, not creative as in art, but creative in, in terms of ideation, right? Basically, she's thinking about imagination as going to whatever the void is that grace has created and trying to, through the intellect... To fix it. Fix it or establish some sort of understanding of why it exists and therefore explain it away. Isn't that what she's saying? I, I think so. And I also get the sense, uh, there's, a, there's a sense in that use of the word imagination of a, of a spiritual, ethical, moral urge to, um, to create something of the self that doesn't actually need saving I mean, I, I sort of look at that sentence from a theological or, or maybe even a homiletical perspective, like a preacher. The, the, the flesh has an urge in it to make itself okay so that it isn't necessary that undeserved grace come in into, and fill up a void. So imagination is essentially the self-salvation project. Yeah, it's the, I mean, I see it like the, it's the flesh. It's the flesh that would say to the world, I have kept the law or mm. I am sufficient. Or that would establish some sort of a physical um, reason for everything that's occurred, thereby explaining away a need for anything supernatural. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I was going to say is that when you imagine something, you can only imagine what you already know. Mm. Even if you're coming up with some creative Mm. thing, like I can think, oh, a pink elephant with wings. Well, I'm still thinking of the color pink in an elephant and wings. Mm. I'm only using the toolbox that I have Mm. to imagine something. And so we can't use something that we already have inside ourselves to fill the void, including what our intellect is full of. That's a great thought. And I think that is consistent with what I know of Vale's approach and the other things that she says in this book. She mentioned several times, our help must come from outside us. Because it, it kind of like the way you said it, everything from inside us is essentially part of the problem, is mm-hmm. subject to the laws of gravity, so to speak, or those, those laws that are analogous to the laws of gravity. That's really interesting because it, if you go back to that, that idea of analogy, of seeing the world as a world of analogy and seeing God as the ultimate analogy, this idea of the imagination sort of is at cross purposes with that other, don't you think? She seems mm-hmm. to say that. I also think it's really interesting in this passage, the way she identifies grace as the thing that creates the void as well as the thing that fills the void. Yeah. Talk about that for a second, Missy. Well, just in this line, grace fills empty spaces, but it can only enter where there's a void to receive it. And it is grace itself, which makes this void. 
So somehow grace makes a void so that it can come in and fill the void, which I think really does um, point up the problem of pain issue again, because it makes grace responsible for whatever the suffering was that is the void. She, it does seem like she's implying that or maybe even stating it. The su- that- maybe, maybe I said that wrong. Maybe it makes grace responsible for whatever the suffering is that we term the void, because the void can be equivalent to a variety of different things that touch on human relationship or provision or, I don't know, death or um, a lack of love or whatever. We can, we can fill that word void in with a bunch of other things right? right. That, that constitute human suffering. She's saying that grace creates that as well as fills that, Yes, which is very interesting to make grace, because we think of grace as the solution. To somebody else's problem. Well, solution to our own problem, right? Grace is the solution to all problems. Grace. Grace is going to fix this. But We yeah. don't ever think about the fact that grace creates the problem, or at least creates an acknowledgement, a sense of the problem. It creates our, our awareness of the problem in our own souls. This is... Uh... This is kind of the key to understanding what Flannery O'Connor is after in her, in her short stories, I think. I mean, if you think about Flannery O'Connor from the perspective of this idea, of Vale's idea about grace creating the void, then a lot of the violent scenes from O'Connor's stories, which she herself admitted she was trying to create a sense of grace, makes a little more sense, don't you think? I mean, maybe that's what O'Connor is depicting. She's depicting Grace doing this very thing, coming in and creating a void, mm-hmm. digging a hole. And I don't think O'Connor very often gets around to depicting the filling that Simone Vale is talking about here. But she certainly, I think, can be said to depict the, the voiding. Well, and that that's not an unimportant part of the process. So that's actually the first step and very necessary. And very gritty. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the opposite of the way, I mean, all words, all language have nuance, right? And we usually think about grace as, as something um, that's associated with pillows and soft clouds, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's gentle and soft and it's, it's comfort, right? Yeah. Grace is comfortable words. But in this sense, in it, in the fa- it, by saying that grace is the thing that creates the void, we give it some teeth. I'll say some claws even, which is very interesting. We just celebrated Easter and and that's the very thing that the cross symbolizes. Mm -hmm. I think it's Ian who talks about his professor asking him, was the crucifixion beautiful? And everyone in the class instinctively wanting to say yes, but the truth is no. No. It was very far from being beautiful. Mm -hmm. It was ugliness itself. It was horror. And so there's an example, right, Emily, of... Grace making the void that it would then enter. Mm-hmm. Don't you think it's also interesting that by her use of the term grace, she gives grace motivation. That's not the word I'm looking for, but all of a sudden agency. There's the word. Yeah, yeah, right. She right. gives grace agency in a sense, mm-hmm. and only people have agents. Mm. Our agents but, have hey, agency. I like- <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking, I'm thinking about the fact that the word grace usually is, um, it's, it's an object, mm-hmm. not a person, mm-hmm. right? It's a term. It's a theological term. 
But the way that she uses the word grace, it has agency, so it's it's person. Mm. Yeah. It's why in the context that she's using it, I like grace so much better because it captures both the true, the good, and the beautiful, and the false, the bad, and the ugly. Um, mm. And as the thing, the things of human life, the things that are good for us are are both truth, goodness, and beauty, and falsehood, badness, mm. ugliness, people, um, ugliness. Yeah, that is really interesting. I think Emily, you're following up on what Mom said that that um, uh, that grace is both is both sides of that, and it's got some teeth and some agency in creating the hole that it fills. I, I also. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I'm I cutting can, off. Well, I can come back around. Okay, come back around because that makes me think of this. <laughs> Since we're talking about the agency of grace, I see that last line, that we must continually suspend the work of the imagination, filling the void within ourselves, um, in order to not get in the way of this agent, grace, we have to um, sit on our hands as agents ourselves, is what she's basically saying. I think she is. We have to reduce our own agency. We have to allow ourselves to be made impotent. Yes, very much so. And that that's why I come back to Flannery O'Connor again. In that previous sentence, she says, the imagination is continually at work, filling up all the fissures, you know, um, putting thumbs in the dike, shoring up the defenses against that void that Grace comes in to fill. And I think of all of her characters in the stories that are about to receive violent comeuppances mm. and all of the squirming they do to avoid it. Uh, this sentence seems like a real good explanation of what O'Connor might have been after to depict um, fleshly people straining their imaginations to avoid facing or embracing their emptiness and their insufficiency. Isn't it interesting to think about the fact of the idea that grace is a void? Because usually when we think about grace or faith, we're talking about producing something, right? With our own will, producing something, presenting something. Yes. It's, a, it's a thing, however we want to say it. It's yeah. a thing. It's a sufficiency. Uh, maybe a, a sufficiency. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, at least a spiritual substance that we somehow conjure up within our souls and we present it in, a, in individual occasions, right? And progress yeah. and are sanctified as a result of this faith thing that we do or we create or we give. But she seems to indicate that that it's a void, that faith yeah. itself is a kind of a void. Yeah, I think because she Because it she takes does. faith in order to sit on our hands. Faith is believing that that void will be filled by something other than us. Yeah. It's an absence. It's a hope. If if grace is salvation in this little paragraph and in this formulation of the idea, if grace is salvation, then the then the faith that earns salvation or the faith that is rewarded with salvation is the void that grace comes in to fill. Mm -hmm. And so it's exactly what you're saying, Missy. The implication is that faith is the nothingness mm -hmm. that grace comes in and solves. And that that nothingness is the precondition for grace to do its perfect work. Yeah. And she's talking about it with respect to, to physical suffering, with respect to, to illness and poverty and anguish and need, and, and need of all, of of all sort of, of physical kinds. But I think the, the spiritual implication is pretty 
obvious there. Existential. It's a little existential, yeah. That's yeah, that's probably that's not a reach given the fact of when she was writing and the mm. you know, the philosophical climate of the early twentieth century, for sure. When when was she writing? Tell me more about that. She was born in nineteen oh nine and died in nineteen forty three. So she did So did she live through the Holocaust? Um I think she was out of Europe by that time. Because she was Jewish, wasn't she? Yes, but she was um, already in England in a TB hospital. Okay. By the, I think by the time of the Holocaust, so she died what, at age at age um, thirty-seven or thirty-three or something. But very, she very would young. have been aware of it. Oh yes. Did she write about it? I don't know the answer to that question. I know she had Leon Trotsky over to dinner. That's interesting. Oh <laughs> very interesting. Yeah, she, and she was evidently one of the, oh, the very few people that ever went head to head with Leon Trotsky in a debate and won. Really? Yeah. Very interesting person. No question about it. Very interesting. But what about this? What about this exhortation at the end? We must continually suspend the work of the imagination, filling the void within ourselves. It's she's she's. Again, these are private writings, so she's exhorting herself, but she sees the, the job of the faithful person to suspend the work of the imagination, to cease some sort of doing of some kind. How would you care? What do you think she's driving at? I think that I, I see that in the way that I pursued my education and the way that I see our educational world. Um, it's so easy to use education to just fill that void. I just imagine a little shovel every day trying mm-hmm. to <laughs> trying to scoop some knowledge and some virtue into mm-hmm. that hole. Mm-hmm. And and what's the impulse that makes you do it? I mean, you generally speaking, not you personally, but well, no, it's me too. It's it's an understandable impulse. It's it's one to be okay. Mm-hmm. Wanting to get mm-hmm. better, wanting to be righteous and good. Is goodness it, is a good. It, it's a good thing. It's 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 good to contemplate goodness. It's good to desire goodness. I suppose. Would she say that those things partake of the laws of gravity then, instead of the laws of grace? I mean, that's sort of the that seemed like the implication of this from my perspective. That if you go where Emily just went and say this is how this looks when I'm actually doing it, Vale seems to be implying that you are, in as much as you do that, living according to the laws of gravity. Well, wouldn't you just call it human ethics? If you're talking about human goodness, you're talking about ethics. Well, she doesn't mention ethics, so she says gravity. That's why I was wondering if that's what she would mean. It makes me think of uh, the hiding place with the empty hands, empty hands. Mm -hmm. Anything that has a name, any virtue, any anything that has a name is a something that's in your hand. Mm -hmm. Wow. Grace requires empty hands. Wow. And we, you know, that resonates because the only time you really experience grace, at least personally, I've found that the only time I really experience grace is when I see my deficit, when I see that, that I've got nothing and that really I've got less than nothing because it's not just that I don't have anything to bring to the table, but that what I've brought to the table is less than nothing. Mm-hmm. It's it's a deficit. Mm-hmm. It's a strike against my account. I'm overdrawn. I, you know what I mean? I, yeah. It's sin. Yeah. This this uh, the the human relationship that's most poignant in that idea, Missy, is the is the repentance forgiveness relationship. Right. right? You've, you've wronged somebody, and exactly. it's your fault, and there's no excuse for it, and you're in the wrong. You see it. 
And in that moment, you ha- in that re- relationship, you have nothing. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's true in that situation that that void is necessary so that grace can come in. At least that, that you can't see it. You can't, maybe the grace was there before, but you can't receive it when your hands are full. Mm-hmm. You can't perceive it when your hands are full. So if at that moment, I'm just doing this very elementary level, thinking about this by example, if at that moment I use my imagination and come up with a reason it wasn't my fault right, and fill the void within myself, then there are, all the fissures are blocked, right? And no grace gets in. Or if in that moment you um, see yourself um, surrounded by your acts of goodness, then you have no need for grace because mm-hmm. there's no deficit. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's important that she says that grace fills it. We always live in the tension of the void, but there is something that comes in and fills it up. We don't always have emptiness. Yeah. There's something that replaces it that isn't ours, but there isn't a void anymore. Right. Not only that, but it's the thing that creates the void, which means it's always present acting on us. Yeah. Either emptying or filling, yes? Right. Right. Either acting on us in a severe mercy mm-hmm. sort of way, or coming in comfort to fill that emptiness. We're just really reluctant, I think, to be empty. We're really reluctant to suffer. Mm. I am. To know our humanity and our, our neediness. So I may be going to meddling here, but does this idea of grace and the the analogy of gravity and the and the impulse of the imagination, does this idea put limits on the notion of the moral imagination that we in the educational world tend to use to describe the educational project? I mean, is that, is that an imagine, a similar kind of imagination put to use in a moral direction, an ethical direction? Does that moral imagination idea cross purposes with this, this idea of the void at all? I don't think it can. If we assume that when we're creating a moral imagination in our children and in ourselves, what we're doing is arming ourselves against any want or defect of morality, mm. that is making, making our children and ourselves righteous, well then, yeah, I suppose we're working at cross-purposes, even as she's suggesting mm. we are with the imagination. But if we're talking about the moral imagination being nothing more than establishing a law within your child's heart, an ethical law, a humane law whereby they will be able to see their deficit, Right. then suddenly um, the project of creating an immoral, a moral imagination in your child and in yourself is very, very significant. And synchronizes nicely with what Vale seems to be saying mm-hmm. at the same time. Something, yeah, the miracle of grace, or, or like, let's make it a metaphor, like if you saw something just start rising up contradicting the laws of gravity that would be miraculous but you'd have to know the gravity you'd have to know the law of gravity in the mm-hmm. first place oh yes to even perceive the miracle recognize the direction of things in order to see the supernatural hmm. i think about um heidi you guys most probably most of you have read heidi or at least aware of, of the story i've seen the jason robards movie okay that'll do so when i was a little girl 
the appropriate age, I found that book. I read that book and I wanted to be Heidi. I wanted to be like her because she was so cheerful and she always wanted to make other people happy. She was really selfless and loving and she transformed people's lives that way. And I thought, I want to be like Heidi. And that's always that little seed that was awakened in my heart then has always persevered. It's, it's still with me. I still want to be like that. And sadly, <laughs> I am it's not like that. established beyond reasonable doubt. Yeah, I, tend, I tend to have the opposite effect. What is it that we'd like to say? A little bit of Andrews goes a long way. <laughs> That's what we say in our family. Because, you know, the shine comes off without rubbing very hard. It doesn't take long to get beneath the, the shellac, you know, scrub away some of that exterior uh, glow and find darkness and depravity. Oh, good grief. Stop already. No, seriously. (laughs) We disappoint. I disappoint myself on a regular basis and think, well, Heidi would have done so-and-so, but me, (laughs) I've done this, you know, and I see my shortfall regularly, which maybe is the work of the moral imagination in my Uh life, functioning in that particular, you know, and if, if that's what we're talking about by a moral imagination, I think that's a good thing. Right. Because no man is good, not one. Only, only God is good. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what Jesus said? Mm-hmm. To, I believe it was Nicodemus. No one is good but God. Why do you call me good? You were saying that, that maybe that's the work of the moral imagination. And I was thinking as you described it, maybe that's the work of great, the grace that Vale is talking about mm-hmm. that makes the void. And in that moment when you say, oh no, the shine is off the apple or whatever right. phrase you just used, <laughs> there it is that whatever, whatever has caused that is the action of grace um, making the void that it then purposes to to come and fill. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what happens when when um, Ruby Turpin in this Flannery O'Connor story, Revelation, gets a book in the eye. Right. And, you know, and somebody tries to choke her to death and, and calls her a warthog get, from hell. Yeah, or when people get shot and drowned and broken and thrown under tractors and all kind of horrible stuff. It, that's the moment where the grace is coming in and making the void. And maybe that's what you're talking about. Yeah, because we don't stay there. I mean... The end is not, oh, I'm really a horrible person. It's that I am not good, mm-hmm. but God is. Mm-hmm. There's grace. There is goodness personified. And he comes in that moment with his, well done, good mm-hmm. and faithful servant. I apply my work to you and count you as my own child. Mm-hmm. That's the miracle. Right. The miracle is the proclamation of acceptability that comes as a result of his own action of grace, his own agency, creating the void and then filling it. So what do you think about this? The, a couple of key words in this last sentence, we must continually suspend the work of the imagination. Emily, what do you think she means by that? What does that suggest to you? It's kind of a, like via negativa, right? Just mm-hmm. stopping the thought. And, and looking outside yourself, looking to the hills mm-hmm. and turning your attention outside of your own mind and heart mm-hmm. outward. It that, makes the, me think of that, um, that verse, is it in Isaiah? I have set my face like a flint. It, it seems to call on us to do that very thing, to look unflinchingly at this void. And over and over though, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, her use of the word continually, I think, suggests that she envisions this as a as a an ongoing process rather than a, aha, I get it mm-hmm. theologically speaking or philosophically speaking, I agree to the proposition and now I move on. To live in it. We gotta live in the void. Right. 
to live in the void. Yep. Which which makes sense if if the implication, Missy, that you teased out a minute ago, if uh, grace fills the void, then faith must be the void. Then a life of faith, to put a Christian spin on things, a life of faith is a life continually spent in the knowledge of your of your voidness, if I can coin a phrase. Yes. Well, if you think about it, I don't know. I, I think about the when I think about a void, at least scientifically, I think about. Um, weightlessness and buoyancy and a rise and and joy seems to be associated with that figuratively speaking. So maybe abiding in the void and being filled by the thing that created the void in the first place, grace, produces that buoyancy of soul that mm. is um, that is joy. Mm. I think that's why I like the moderns and the existentialists so much. They uncovered the void. It was there all along. No one was willing to talk about it. Yeah. And there it is. They didn't do anything to fill it, but you got to see the void Yeah. I really, you know, I didn't like the moderns and the existentialists before you came along, Emily, but you've you've definitely, by harping on that theme right there, have have brought me around to your way of thinking. That really, I think that's really one of the great uses we can put to that whole section of Western literature. Look, here's the void. It's true. You've been we've been denying it as a culture for low these many years in one way or another. Let's take a square look. And maybe that's what Vale is, is on about when she says we must continually suspend the work of the imagination. Maybe that's an indictment of 19th century literature. What, what do you mean? The work of the imagination in filling the void within ourselves. Oh yeah, you mean the romantic literature? Yeah, that's probably going earlier. too far. I think I, I would want to walk that back, but <laughs> okay, we'll let you. But don't cut it out. We're, you're among friends. We're just throwing around ideas here. I don't know. We're just trying to understand. Uh, does a, does a, talking about a quote like this make you want to go read more, Simone Vale? Yeah, I stole it from your basement. Did you really? I was looking for it earlier today and couldn't oh, find it. Did you take it? You booger. Sorry. I did. <laughs> but right. I took it a long time ago. I, yeah. That doesn't change anything. You're still guilty. I'm guilty. Don't I'm don't guilty. use your imagination to fill up the fissure, Emily. You're no. a thief. See your guilt, <laughs> live in it, roll around in it, and get all dirty. But I think, I mean, I would, I would, um, I would recommend Vale just as because she's so very thought provoking. As I said before, it's strange because it's not, um, it's all unfinished in a way, and it's it's like rough drafts. But, um, well, because she's kind of talking to herself. Yeah, it's, it's just a journal. Yeah, it comes off very, very authentic. And you do have the feeling, wow, this was one profound original thinker if these were her private jottings. Mm-hmm. Oh, that my private jottings were half as profound. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, thank you guys for your contributions. This was very enlightening and, uh, and thought-provoking. I hope this was true uh, as well for you Bibliophiles listeners. We're going to go ahead and wrap this episode up and... Put it up in the various places where you can find it. The Center for Lit website, centerforlit.com. It'll be in iTunes and Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. And feel free to uh, search out the other uh, episodes of Bibliophiles that we've put up in those places. In addition, you might want to try Radio Read Along, our line-by-line dramatic reading of classic books followed by Center for Lit style discussions. And that's available in all the other places that I mentioned as well. And we're just, we just encourage you to go participate. If you have comments, drop them in the comment chain. Go give us a five-star review, if you think about it, with wonderful glowing uh, comments and reviews. 
and check out what we're doing on the web at centerforlit.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until we meet again, my friends, happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>